you know, if you can't continue to have the best food, the funkiest nightclub, you know, go to Shakespeare in the Park one day and then go out to East New York and go to Shakespeare in a parking lot, what are we doing? Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the Citizens Budget Commission. CBC is your favorite nonpartisan budget watchdog. Find our work online at cbcny.org um, and at Twitter at cbcny. I'm at Maria Dulles. And Gotham Gazette is a New York City-based publication covering New York politics and policy. And we are on Twitter at Gotham Gazette and I'm at TweetBenMax. Uh, On this podcast, we're delving into all sorts of topics related to public policy in New York with budget numbers and lots of other data, but also explaining how they relate to your everyday life in New York. Uh, For this episode of What's the Data Point, we have a special guest, Alicia Glenn, the Deputy Mayor for Housing and Economic Development in New York City. She's in charge of major aspects of the administration's agenda, namely a massive affordable housing plan and a big new jobs plan. And our data point for today, Maria? is 100,000. That is the number of, quote, good-paying jobs, those paying $50,000 or more annually. The de Blasio administration says it will foster through city efforts as part of a 10-year jobs plan. The plan, called New York Works, was released mid-June with a $1.6 billion price tag. So where are these jobs going to be? There are 30,000 jobs planned in tech industries, 15,000 jobs in life sciences and healthcare, 20,000 jobs in industrial and manufacturing sectors, 10,000 jobs in creative and cultural sectors, and 25,000 jobs of the quote-unquote future. Um, How does this compare to recent job growth, you might be wondering? The city added 83,000 private jobs just in 2016, although this growth is projected to slow to about 50,000 annually this year and next. Employment is at an all-time high, and unemployment is at a record low. But much of the city's job growth has been in low-wage industries, such as leisure and hospitality, and this plan is all about creating middle-class jobs. It will include investments in specific places, land and buildings, as well as companies and people. Our guest is in charge of implementing this plan and will discuss important questions like why cities should make these investments during a growth period, why the city is picking specific sectors to support, how the investments will be tracked and measured, and what the strategy is for filling the jobs of the future with the school, New York City public school kids of today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. That was a lot of data. <laughs> yeah, I was throwing it at you there. Okay. Um, so Maria gave us her data point, 100,000, the jobs plan. But um, the day we're recording here, uh, Thursday, July 27th, is a big day for you and the administration and the city. So we wanted to talk about the sort of news of the day a little bit, which is uh, the East Midtown rezoning. Can you give us sort of the upshot of why it's such a big day? Yeah, I mean, this is a really important day for the city because we adopted today a comprehensive rezoning plan for what we call East Midtown, roughly 39th Street to 57th Street between 3rd Avenue and Madison, which has really been, in many respects, the premier business district, not just of New York, but of the United States and really a global um, capital as well. 
10% of the entire tax revenues of the city of New York come from East Midtown, an extraordinary number. Over 250,000 people currently work there, and it generates billions and billions of dollars in revenue in general. And what we've seen over the past couple of decades is as other um, business districts have come online, which is a good thing, sort of um, diffusing a lot of the economic activity around the city, there has not been a commensurate investment in making sure that East Midtown can continue to be as successful as it has been. But the reason why East Midtown is and was such an amazing business district is because it is located at such an amazing transit hub, right? Grand Central Station was actually designed in order to create businesses around it. With Eastside Access coming in now, it's really critical for us to continue to invest in East Midtown. The buildings there, most of them are over 75 years old, so they're not designed for the kinds of modern users, and we simply haven't had the same kind of focus on East Midtown. So today, we were able to adopt a really comprehensive zoning framework that allows um, owners of properties to build larger buildings, but only if and when they make specific transit or public realm improvements. Um, And that's really the key, right? Because we want to make sure that as we encourage smart growth and that we're building for the city of tomorrow, we're also seeing a commensurate public benefit. And I think it's pretty obvious for any of us who have ever walked around East Midtown that the critical issue right now is overcrowding in our subways, overcrowding on our streets, not enough places to go and have a salad. And so if we are going to continue to see job growth in East Midtown, which we want, we have to match that and really create a mechanism. And that's what this zoning does. It creates a mechanism where you can only build higher buildings if you make either transit improvements or public realm improvements. The second thing it does, which is really important, is allow many of the landmarks that have been um, sort of locked in with their air rights for many, many years to be able to sell their air rights to builders of new buildings to raise much-needed capital for them to sustain and reinvest in their landmarks, which are also a critical piece of the sort of puzzle of what makes New York so wonderful, right? We have these wonderful landmarks. We're committed to landmarking, but we also have to make sure that those groups have an opportunity to raise enough money to reinvest in them. So can we just pause on air rights for a second? That was a pretty um, contentious piece of the negotiations. What exactly does that mean? So if if you're one of the landmarks, you're not going to build up you can sell off your right to build to somebody else? Correct. So traditionally, if you're a landmark and you have excess development rights, you can only sell a percentage of them to receiving sites immediately adjacent to your landmark. And that basically has made many of these landmarks in East Midtown landlocked because there aren't that many um, sites across the street. So this creates a zone, that same district, those um, landmarks can sell their air rights to anybody within the zone. 78 block. Yeah. So essentially Mm -hmm. creating a market for them now, which they don't have. And this is hugely important again, because we want these institutions, the synagogues, the churches, any of the you know other institutions that are landmarked, to be able to raise capital. And then it also allows us from, the, from that sale to take a piece of that proceeds, put it into the public realm fund so that we can invest in really, really needed public realm improvements. So it really is a win-win for the landmarks, for the folks who live and work in the neighborhood, and for the development community who really needed a more flexible envelope and more density in order to attract the kind of businesses we want to see stay and grow in New York. And so the pricing of those air rights, I think, was a point of contention in recent months. How was that resolved? Well, you know, the, the Bloomberg administration had had tried to do this um, towards the end of their administration, had linked um, the air rights sale to a specific number. We felt that it was important that the market actually is going to set the price, but we didn't want to let the market also 
be a race to the bottom and not allow the city to get some significant piece of the action, if you will, in order to make sure that the private sector was paying um, for the public improvements in return for the density. So it's 20 percent um, is what uh, gets put into the public realm. But no matter what the cost of the air rights are, the, the city is guaranteed to receive $61.50 um, out of any air rights transaction. And I think that's really important because the public now knows that there's a identifiable source of funds coming in so that it's not just talking about public improvements. It's saying that we really know the money is going to come in and, and provide the capital necessary to do it. And this is very different than a lot of these other rezonings that are in process or the East New York rezoning, which is the one that's passed and, and uh, Far Rockaway is, is – or the downtown Rockaway is in the, in the works. But um, – this is sort of a different because it's so focused on the commercial space. Yeah, I mean, this was absolutely designed to encourage and promote uh, the creation of high quality class A office space. And as I've said, what is maybe the premier business district in the world? And it's also important for, you know, we're not a one man band. We can, you know, we can focus on the needs of communities and, you know, encouraging smart mixed income communities and focusing on our housing plan. And that doesn't mean we don't have the ability to also think about these broader issues around our long term competitiveness and our healthy economy. So this is a very different animal. Um, and I think, again, city planning and what we do, and I think there's a reason why, you know, I'm the deputy mayor for housing and economic development. We can do both of these things and we need to have a balanced development. Agenda. It can't be all about one thing. Um, and I think this was a very, very pure play example of the city using one of its most powerful tools to encourage and incentivize, you know, really, really high quality office space and hopefully great buildings and beautiful building typologies and architecture as well. So maybe you have a different segue that you want to connect it to the jobs plan, but one that comes to mind for me is the second biggest chunk of the five chunks in the jobs plan is space for jobs of the future. Is that where this is sort of fits that? You know, absolutely. I mean, anybody will tell you that, you know, one of the challenges New York is facing as we look out is there was a study that showed we needed about 60 million square feet of new office space to come online in order to keep up, even with organic job growth. And that's even with um, Hudson Yards being fully built out, uh, the World Trade Center site being completed, and some interesting work going on in, in Queens and Brooklyn. So, you know, that doesn't just happen without government action and decisions to make those investments either in our own capital, which we're also making improvements here, but also using our regulatory and land use authority to incentivize that. So it's absolutely critical that part of the jobs plan is to create the spaces where these great companies will want to come, because it would be a tragedy if companies that are 20, 50, 100 people today would like to be the company of 1,000 people 10 years from now, but they literally don't have the space to go to. So I think you know a very very basic you know, tenet of any economic development strategy is to make sure that we're creating the spaces necessary for the companies to grow um, and stay in New York City. So wh- which of these investments in the job plan do you think have the potential to be most transformative down the road? Mm-hmm. And that's both, I think, in terms of diversifying the city's economy, but also, as you say, diversifying the space, right, and creating true regional central business districts and, and corridors like the budding tech corridor and the Brooklyn-Long Island city area. 
Well, you know, I'm a mother and I have a couple of kids, so I never like to pick one over the other. So I'm not <laughs> going to pick which is going to be the most transformative. But I think, you know, just this week, we, we put together our cybersecurity roundtable. And here's an example of where being proactive, I think, is going to be ultimately very transformational. I don't think I have to tell you or your viewers why cybersecurity is becoming increasingly more important um, to government, to financial institutions, to nonprofits, to educational institutions, et cetera. And and to date, it's largely been focused, you can make sense of it, um, in the D.C. area, obviously the federal government being the the greater acquirer of, of cybersecurity. But given the number of large companies and institutions we have in New York here, the need for cybersecurity engineers, designers, um, implementers has just grown exponentially. And of all the jobs that are out there in cybersecurity, every single company was telling us that they were going down to D.C. to recruit. And they were recruiting people from University of Maryland or from MIT or from the Valley. And I thought, this is this makes no sense. I know that we have the talent at CUNY and at the local universities here that if we can help them focus on a cybersecurity agenda and really engage with the institutional players who are already here in New York, we will be able to start feeding that need from New Yorkers. And that's exactly what we did yesterday. We got together a group of um, major players, both in the startup world and cybersecurity, and the institutions, whether it's Wall Street institutions or, again, big hospitals um, and big Fortune 500 companies. And they were all so excited that the city was both playing a role as convener, so that the startups could meet the big guys, and also that we were prepared to invest in CUNY and other training programs for specifically a cybersecurity agenda. We think that making that sort of early stage investment could result in 10,000 jobs. Those jobs, by the way, are now paying on average about $150,000. So I want that industry to grow here, and I want it to be filled with New Yorkers. So I think those are the kinds of examples where you take our natural strengths, which is a diversity of our economy, and then layer on sort of what is our niche and make smart early-stage investments. So I'm trying, I, I want to figure out, let's stick with cybersecurity as a good example, and that is, you know, that's where you launched the plan with the mayor and uh, at a cybersecurity company. Um, what's the, you know, convener that makes sense. You're bringing people to the table. Um, I know that's, you know, particularly a, a skill of yours. Um, but what's the city, you know, what does the city have to spend money on here? Why, if cybersecurity is a growing industry and, you know, a lot of it's maybe just about making sure that some of the educational institutions in New York are focusing on that. What does the city have to invest? Right. In some respects, you'd think the market would do what the market should do, right, if there's a supply and demand imbalance. But we know that there's market failure here. We know that there are not enough um, talented engineers and software folks who are specifically trained in cybersecurity. And often the companies that are hiring them, that's not what they do, right? They're not in the business necessarily of going out and designing training programs, right? It's, that sort of flow is not um, naturally the way a lot of companies think about it. So the actual investments are literally in, um, facilitating new curricula, hiring more professors um, at various uh, CUNY institutions that have strong tech programs, and also physically putting together a space that's going to be an accelerator devoted specifically to cybersecurity technology startups. And this is important because it's based on work we did with the Media Center, where having large companies like NBC, HBO, other big media companies be investors in and members of a media hub 
has allowed the startups that are in that hub to be able to commercialize their work and grow their product much faster. So we got a lot of feedback yesterday that if there is a physical place where many young cybersecurity technology startups are physically co-located, they want to be part of that, and it will help them facilitate employment and the transfer of new technology. So that's a physical investment as well. Okay. And, and, and on the physical investment, because that's sort of a very key piece of everything you're doing, is the cybersecurity, um, how do you describe it, hub, market? Accelerator. Accelerator. <laughs> is that going to be at this Union Square um, lot or because no, that's tech-focused? That's tech-focused as well. That I, I, We don't think so. I think that this is more likely going to be either um, at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, where we're doing a lot of work, obviously, in, in applied technology, or possibly in Long Island City or other locations. Again, to your point, which is how do we make sure that we're also diffusing a lot of the benefits Benefits of you know the technology and innovation economy, so that it doesn't just stay in Manhattan. So that will be a priority of ours, and we tend to locate them in our own assets, which again um, we have more assets in the other boroughs. And that's where most of the spending is coming: is capital money on space. Is it or is it's, that it's capital? It's it's literally building out the space. It's also using our own assets for that, so that provides a sort of built-in subsidy. But also, there are real expense dollars here for many of the training and internship programs, and a lot of that money will be um, made apparent in the November and January plans as we actually price out and, and organize exactly who the providers of these services will be. And I mentioned, uh, you know, one lot in Union Square that's being redeveloped, but. The two big place or three big places are in Brooklyn, the Army, Navy, and uh, the the Sunset Park. Or um, there, there's three different sites that you're developing, right? And this this goes well beyond obviously the the pure tech piece that you were discussing. You know, in terms of our own assets, you know, Brooklyn Navy Yard, Bush Terminal, and the Brooklyn Army Terminal are sort of our three. Um, jewels in our advanced manufacturing innovation economy portfolio. And so that's where we really think, again, there is a very strong case to be made for us to continue to invest, um, again, in what people sometimes call advanced manufacturing. Um, There is an increasingly clear business case that you can have a manufacturer often sort of more bespoke manufacturing in New York City that is continuing to grow jobs, right? We're not going to be building, you know, we're not going to have a, a, a GM plant here, but we are going to have, you know, certain kinds of manufacturing, whether it's, um, again, movie production, Broadway sets, neon lights, high-end furniture, food manufacturing, um, certain kinds of other um, robotics that make a lot of sense because they're so close to universities. Um, and because the talent is here, and I think there's increasingly a case that we need to set aside and invest in that space so that those companies no longer have to worry about, oh my God, is my building going to become a luxury condo, right? We need to take that sort of uncertainty about real estate out of the equation so that companies know it's worthwhile really doubling down here and investing in their future in New York. And that's why it's so important that we've been very clear that all of those industrial zones are not up for grabs for residential. And again, that's a major policy shift that I think over the next couple of years will really begin to bear fruit in terms of the number of manufacturing um, and applied technology companies that feel really committed to staying in New York City. So I guess to summarize a little bit, the strategy is very much based on let's build on our strengths, right? You know, there was a sense definitely after the recession that 
um, while there was this downsizing in, empo- in employment in New York City, but across the country that everybody was grabbing for tech, was grabbing, you know, at these industries that they thought would be growth industries, but not much has come of that. I mean, we've had some success with tech here, but I think you're right in that focusing on specific niches is the way to go to build up the sector and then making the, the workforce investments because that's important. And you know, it's something that CBC has studied and, and tried to benchmark New York City's competitiveness as a region by sort of saying, what's the human capital here? How well are we doing in attracting people? And we found that, you know, we're, we're doing very well compared to other large metro regions. We do great, but we're not doing as well as, say, at Washington, D.C. or Silicon Valley, right? And, you know, our employment is strong. Our higher ed educations, educational institutions are very strong. But where we find some weaknesses is quality of life. So I guess what I want to ask is, um, you know, how do you who do you consider to be New York City's competitors? Um, where do you think New York City has the competitive edge and where are the weaknesses? Well, you're asking a born and bred New Yorker if I think New York <laughs> City has any competitors. Um you know, I think in the United States, obviously, in specific sectors, there are places where there is real competition. Um, but I don't think there is any place in the United States um, that can even begin to offer, um, you know, sort of the panorama of what you experience here in New York City. I mean, even now, you know, only 29 or th- 29 or 30 percent of our of our revenue is coming from Wall Street. But that means there's 70 percent of really interesting, amazing things going on here, right? That would not be the case, for example, in Washington, D.C., where 70% or 80% of their business is government or affiliated lobbying, et cetera. So, you know, we our strength is our diversity in every sense of the word, right? It's, it's a series of diverse sectors that play off each other and create, you know, I hate all that sort of collision theory, but it's true. It really is true where, you know, I was at Hearst this morning talking about fashion tech and media tech, and then I went over, you know, to talk to a tech firm. I mean, it's just... It is all here, and that continues to be the case. So I think the diversity of our economy is ultimately our strength because we are not a one-company town, and that's why L.A. and the Valley and Washington um, don't even begin to compete. And these new innovation cities, sure, it's cute, right? So Portland, Oregon, okay, that's like the size of my block. At the end of the day, I mean, I love going to Portland, but it's just not at the scale of what we're doing here. And so, you know, in terms of quality of life, to me, again, the diversity of our neighborhoods, the complexity of our city, the diversity of our people, to me, is worth often what some people will say is the hassle of living in New York City. But it's also the attraction of living in New York City. And, and so I think, look, we still have to focus on clean and safe. Every single day we have to focus on that. Those are the basics. Um, but then we also have to focus on what makes New York City New York City, and that's why we also want to have really strong strategies around our creative and cultural sectors, right? People don't go to Washington, D.C. to, like, go hear cool bands and eat great food, right? Um, the food we, has gotten better. It has gotten better, yeah, but, but really, right, yeah, yes. you're killing me, right? And we should right. note that, as Maria said in the intro, there is at least an earmark for 10,000 jobs mm-hmm. in the creative yeah. and cultural sectors. Right? It's critical, right? Because, again, to your point, in order to continue to not just attract great talent from outside of New York, but to keep great talent here. You know, if you can't continue to have the best food, the funkiest nightclub, you know, go to Shakespeare in the Park one day and then go out to East New York and go to Shakespeare in a parking lot, what are we doing, right? I mean, we begin to sanitize ourselves in the worst sense of the word. And so we also have to be conscious of having a multi-pronged strategy. And most other jurisdictions, quite frankly, do focus on a sector they're going to go after, right? It's why people think we're, we're not a strong life sciences sector, because... Boston is 
you know, the life sciences. What's ironic is that we have an extraordinary wealth of life scientists here, unbelievable health um, research and academic research going on, but you wouldn't even know it so much because it's all part of this amazing gumbo. So again, my view was take a look at all of the sectors. Where will specific investments yield, you know, particular opportunities, not just to grow the sector, but where I can plug New Yorkers into it? Um, and so I think our diversity is ultimately the the hands down winner for us. And how do how do we know? I mean, that's one of the key points in this jobs plan. How do we know that these jobs are going to be filled by folks coming up through the New York City school system, or who at least have been in New York a little while, and not just people graduating from schools all over the country coming to New York? And you sort of see the same thing that's happening with more and more displacement, which ties into the housing part, which I don't think we'll have much time to talk with you about today, but. You know, how do you, how do you, what are the mechanisms in your plans to account for that? Right. I mean, we can't, not everybody's going to have a chip in their neck and we're going to follow them, right? And and nor should we. Some people um, will have so a chip. <laughs> eventually, that'll be topic for another podcast. Um, but I think, look, what, what, the best thing we can do is to attack it from both improving our education system in general, but also making sure that what kids are learning from a young age is preparing them with the skills they need to be successful in the 21st century economy. And then you have to take it to the next level, right? That sounds like political garbledygook, right? Everybody wants to be prepared for the 21st century jobs. But then what I've been particularly focused on is getting employers and the people who actually are the people who are going to hire all these kids to tell me more specifically what they need so that it can be a constant feedback loop. Because one thing government knows is that we're always going to be a little bit behind, right, what the sector or the employer really needs. And we'll never be able to catch up. So we should be working with them on the front end. And that's why things like our tech talent pipeline have been so successful, which is getting people in the tech industry to say, these are the 16 different kinds of codes people need to learn how to write. These are the kinds of engineering or marketing skills we need. And then what we do is that we then fund changes in the curricula in real time. And in return for that, right, for our investment, those people basically have to hire those kids. You know, there's basically a quid pro quo there. And I thought everybody would go crazy and say, oh, my God, we don't want to do that. But what's turned out is that the companies who are involved in the tech talent pipeline now have hired over 1,500 kids coming out of that, all New York kids, many from disadvantaged communities, many women, many kids of color. And 95% of the kids coming out of the tech talent pipeline are making more than $60,000 a year and have been there for more than six months, which in employment workforce world is a stick. And so I think if we see more, I stick in an adhesive way. Um, so I think my, my point to yours is that if we in, engage employers constantly and continuously and get them exposed to what kinds of quality kids were coming out of the public school and the public university system, and quite frankly, help them overcome some stigma around some of the local schools, right? You don't have to go to MIT to get a great computer scientist. Queens College. Exactly. And Queens College is really, in many respects, the diamond in the rough, because Mm -hmm. whenever I'm there, I am blown away by what's going on. And I think, you know, it behooves people. You did your research before coming. I didn't even know that. I was lucky. But I mean, but that's important, right? There's there's biases that people have to overcome. And part of our job is to tell the Goldman Sachs, you know, the Hearst, the JP Morgans, just, you know, go to Queens and do some recruiting. And every single time we've been able to make that successful shidduch, as we say, the employers have thanked us. And that's exactly the kind of drumbeat we need to continue across all of the sectors where we want our New Yorkers to work. Are you, you know, I hear you naming major companies. Are you a favoring 
the big corporations too much here because they have volume? Um, and are you, is there space in your plans for trying to help startups and trying to help, um, you know, small businesses that already have, you know, a little nice thing going with some room to grow from 10 to 20 employees? Sure. I, I don't think we're favoring the big corporates. I think that what we recognize is that the big corporates have resources and have continual uh, labor needs that we should be feeding. In terms of directing our, you know, our most uh, valuable resources, which is our space, our expense dollars, et cetera, it's much more focused on emerging companies, um, on startups. You know, we're, we're focusing, we're, we're providing funding to women filmmakers who are independent entrepreneurs, um, enabling them to go out and, and have the money they need to finish their film and hire five more people and get good paying jobs. Um, we're spending lots of money on food incubators and making sure that people who have a great idea, you know, how many more gluten-free cookie makers <laughs> do we need? I don't know. But if you've come up with the world's greatest gluten-free cookie, you need to go into a commercial kitchen now and we will make sure that you have access so that you can grow your product and hopefully get into Whole Foods. So the vast majority of our on-the-ground work really is with young entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs. We have an immigrant entrepreneurship program. But again, I, I just don't want people to see this as sort of like one or the other. You have to look at this holistically, right? Because if that young woman who's making salsa or the world's greatest gluten-free cookie in the Bronx um, is taking her business to the next level, the thing she really needs is to get into Whole Foods. How do you get into Whole Foods now? You got to know somebody at Amazon. It's a big company. It's not about favoring one or the other. It's about making those connections and, and giving those folks in our neighborhoods the opportunity to do business with those corporations. And that really does become a win-win, I think. So I think just on the last point before you go, we do want to have you talk about the housing plan. Everybody knows it's the largest housing plan. Additional money was added to the plan to further subsidize income for, uh, units for very low income. Do you want to just give us a recap on how the, the plan is progressing and and the mix, the broader mix of um, how you consider the plan? Sure. I mean, I think the housing plan is is really, to say it's on track is, is an understatement. Um, you know, we are, I think we have 77,000 units out of our 200,000, which is obviously, quote, ahead of uh, projections at this point. But again, it continues to be a really balanced housing plan. We were very clear when we came into office that the affordability crisis is way beyond just our lowest income New Yorkers. It's really hitting our workforce as well. Um, and that what makes this plan so different is, is trying to serve people across the income spectrum. We do not want to be a city, what people often refer to as a barbell city. It doesn't mean that we don't have a crisis for our lowest income families, and we shouldn't spend a huge amount of our efforts working on that. But it would also be sort of um, long-term bad policy not to also think about serving the folks who've lived in these neighborhoods forever and make $40,000, $50,000 a year. Those, to me, are good investments. We have also recognized that with the increasing pressure coming out of Washington in terms of the availability of resources, that we have to be flexible and be able to add money when necessary so that we can keep our promises. Um, and so with federal resources continuing to shrink and tax reform in the air, it has changed some of the dynamics of how we how we finance housing. Um, so I know that you are all frustrated to not understand exactly what the math is. Part of that is, you know, we up until two years ago expected to raise a certain amount of money in equity from the sale of tax credits. Even with the rumor of corporate tax reform, tax credit pricing dropped by about 10% in a month. So we have to be thoughtful about how we can continue to keep pace with production, and that will mean using more city resources. 
maybe there'll be another election in 2020, mm-hmm. and then we can get some of that money back. But the mayor is absolutely committed to making sure that both the lowest-income New Yorkers are served and moderate-income New Yorkers. Those are actually very expensive things to do because they fall out of the traditional definition of low-income housing, which is what is still more or less funded to some degree by the other programs. Um, I'm really excited about it. We have increased our production um, for low and moderate income New Yorkers. And it's not just about units. We talk about this a lot. It's about the families. You know, It's about the people who stayed in the neighborhoods during the not so great years. And um, it's about human beings, not just units. And I'm really, really proud of the work the team has done. I'll, g- I'll give, if Maria wants to ask one more after this, but the last one for me, um, just to, to follow up on that, you know, Looking at shifting a few thousand of the units to lower income um, bands uh, and families, as you point out, um, that will be filling them. Um, it, the 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 need and the supply still are very far off, right? And I and it's clear you're putting billions of dollars into this, but what is also needed here to make you know what else is needed What's to the make game changer? yeah? I mean, how is it? But is it also that you know, there's arguments that, you know, the market, maybe it's, extend, it's figuring out ways to extend the subway system or, or better bus because, you know, the market needs to create more housing where there's space in the city. And that's not in the and central some business. some of that might need to be regionally, right? Maybe it's not all within the five boroughs. Absolutely. We definitely need a regional strategy. Right. One of the things we did was actually create a regional planning office within the Department of City Planning to sort of at least recognize that and begin to coordinate with our, with our sister counties. Um, look, there's no one answer to this. There is clearly a massive supply and demand imbalance, right? Any of us who even took basic macroeconomics can see that. And that's why the affordable housing plan is not the only piece of the equation. It's why we are so focused on smart uh, rezonings that are linked to transit-oriented development. It's why we fought tooth and nail for things like the 421A plan. It's not just about the affordable housing that gets built out of 421A, but it's also creating the environment where rental housing pencils, because we also need to see a huge amount of production in the rental sector in you know period, end of discussion. And we need big ideas. Look, if people said, oh, well, why are you even pretending you're going to do things in sunny side yards over the next 20 years? Well, if we're not thinking about doing housing in places like Sunnyside Yards, and what are we doing, right? These are big, long-term efforts. We need to sow those seeds now so that we can continue to make a dent in this and to be a pro-growth city. I don't think there's a silver bullet. I think we need more help from Washington. We need less agita from Albany. And we need communities and civic leaders and businesses to all understand why we should be investing in our communities and taking on these really big, complicated projects because they're complicated issues. Was there was there a huge missed opportunity in the early part of this century, you know, in in the recreation, you know, after September 11, 2001, perhaps, you know, as as you know, there was a lot of reevaluation and and city budget issues. But coming then out of that, was there huge missed opportunities to do better planning? You know, I, I never like to, you know, criticize or be a, you know, a Monday morning quarterback because I'm sure people will say the same thing about us. I do think there was a bit of a missed opportunity in terms of at the early stages of the recovery. Um, I would have argued, and we argued strongly, that, you know, things like mandatory inclusionary housing or less uh, deep 
tax incentives um, you know, would have been better policy because the public sector would have gotten more um, of that value capture. Um, you know, folks then would say, well, we didn't know the market was still, you, know, you could never tell. I think in retrospect, you know, I think part of the reason why communities are still very nervous about density is because things like the Greenpoint-Williamsburg rezoning didn't come with the promises of affordable housing, of the park. The mayor talks about this a lot. But, but I think it's true. It's about restoring, you know, contract with communities, what I call it. And to me, that was a lost opportunity. Because if you look at the math, and I was working on the other side of this at the time, there was more we could have sort of gotten from the private sector. It doesn't mean that those things weren't weren't good to do, but I think, you know, at the beginning of the century, we should have thought a little bit more about the correct balance between what the public sector um, should be getting from using their regulatory and discretionary authority. And, and I think one of the things we can be proud of is that we've really tried to, to recalibrate that balance. And I hope if not today, but maybe five, 10 years from now, people will look back and say, you know, they were really thoughtful about that and they pushed the envelope, but they didn't ultimately stop development, right? And that's always the threat. And so I think we've really found that tipping point. Um, and I hope that we can continue to do the great work we've been doing. Well, Alicia Glenn, Deputy Mayor for Housing and Economic Development, we thank you for joining us. Uh, and as the jobs plan, the housing plan, and everything else moves forward, we'll we'll be talking with you, I'm sure. Thank I you look, for joining. Look forward thank you. to it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Bye.